not uncommon in driving in the streets of America to see someone in front of you with a bumper sticker. The bumper sticker often will say something to the effect of, I love Jesus, or do you love the Lord? Those are very, very important questions to a Christian. It's a question asked by many religious people, and it's also a very, very important biblical issue. Jesus Christ, when he was asked, what is the great commandment in Matthew chapter 22? Now, the question was asked not by people really seeking to understand. There's no doubt it was a great controversy among the Pharisees who debated God's law. And so they asked it really trying to trap Christ. But Jesus quickly answered when he was asked this question in Matthew 22 and verse 36. It says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. How do you love God? How is our love of God to be expressed and to be shown? In the religious community of this world, people have chosen vows of sacrifice to express their love to God. They have chosen vows involving poverty or silence, celibacy. Some have fasted. It's not uncommon for people to go through pilgrimages where they put their body uh, through tests and trials of endurance and suffering. Sometimes they've decided to live a life without the comforts and pleasures that God has afforded us in the flesh. Is this truly pleasing to God? Is this an expression of love that God desires? I think before we really get into the subject, it's very, very important for us to understand that God first loved us. And then when we discuss the love of God, it is, in fact, a return the love that has been shown to us by God. In 1 John chapter 4, and in verse 19, this is very straightforwardly and simply expressed in the Scripture. We love Him because He first loved us. So God established the relationship. And because God established the relationship... It's also very important for us to understand that God's the one who should direct the manner of that relationship. We read a passage which is often quoted in this world, and it's something that in God's church we should not in any manner minimize. I don't believe that we do, but it's a very powerful scripture in John chapter 3 in verse 16. It shows us the depth of the very love of God for us. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God's love toward us was expressed in very real terms that touch our life, that have to do with our very eternity. And God reveals that to us so we understand and we appreciate In 1 John, again, going back to chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, this time reading verses 8 through 10, the Bible tells us, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So our very knowledge and relationship with God is also based on a correct and a proper understanding of of the instruction that God has given to us in loving Him. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the Bible reveals that we're to respond to God's love. And to respond to God's love in an appropriate manner 
you must listen to God. That He will direct us, He will give us guidance, that He will reveal to us how we're to express our love to Him. In fact, the Bible actually tells us that one of the areas of growth that we should all pray for and ask God to work in our lives is in this very area, that God would direct our love toward Him. Notice in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the brethren that he deeply loved, as he expressed in 1 Thessalonians. He said, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So he wanted their hearts directed in a right way. We live in a society where people have literally chosen for themselves and drawn from their background, their culture, perhaps their life's experience in their home, to define how love is to be expressed and what love should mean. The Bible really gives us a very clear and direct explanation of how to love God, how it should be expressed, how it should be a part of and put into practice in our lives. I'd like to point out to you a principle that's mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy where God really directs and warns us to be cautious about doing things in our own way. There are many cautions like this in the Scripture. This one particularly has to do with worshiping God in the place of worship, the manner we choose. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, Deuteronomy 12, and starting in verse 4, God said, to the children of Israel, he says, You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. Now, his reference here were to the idols, the images, and the practices of the pagan deities and gods that the neighbors to Israel, and I'm sure that they experienced in Egypt. In fact, we know that some of them carried with them some of their idols throughout their journeys. But God was very explicit. We're not to worship God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses, out of your tribes, to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. It's interesting that situation is a question that confronts many people today. Not so much, I believe, in our fellowship, because we're here in part because we answered that question. But there are many people who have knowledge of God's ways of life who are struggling today with where should I go and what should I do. God makes it very plain it is important. God told Israel, there you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings, of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. All of these were areas where God had given them instruction in terms of worshiping him, showing respect. And when you study them, all of them literally in some way pointed to the laws of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, it says, There you shall eat before the Lord your God. You shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. But then notice verse 8. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing what is right in his own eyes. That was what was happening. And so God gave instruction. He corrected it. He wanted Israel to worship him in a particular manner. God today has given us instruction in his word, as to how to love him, how to worship him. And it's very important we understand it. In this sermon, I'm certainly not going to be able to cover all the details, but I'd like to hopefully help you to think about your relationship to God, how you think in terms of your love and your expression of that relationship, and compare it to some of the guidance that we see in God's word. And ask yourself, are these thoughts and approaches that you take and are very important to you.
Let's notice first in the book of John, Jesus Christ addressed this subject. In John chapter 14, John 14, and in verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. So he made it very plain that our expression of love and our love toward God is based upon obedience. In verse 21, John chapter 14, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus went on to say in verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So the the words of Christ are very explicit that we need to obey God's command, his instruction, that we need to have that as the emotional part of our very relationship with God, our being, as the Scripture tells us in the great commandment, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with our mind. He tells us in verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now, we commonly understand in the church of God that when Jesus Christ said, the first and great commandment is that he was summarizing the first four of the first of the Ten Commandments. That he was, in fact, summarizing the principle of those commandments. That they reveal to us how to love God. We also understand that the second commandment, which is like to the first, is a summary of the following six commandments. The fifth commandment could be viewed as a bridge because it has to do with honoring our parents, and certainly God is our Heavenly Father. We understand that they show us how to love our neighbor. In our world today, many people focus upon those particular commandments but they really do not look upon and look for the same instruction and guidance from God's Word as to how to love God. And there are many people in our society, unfortunately, today that are also rejecting God's commandments in terms of our neighbor and seeking other ways to express feelings and emotions that are outside of and contrary to God's laws. They believe it's love, but it's not. And the fruit of it, of course, reveals that it's not love. It doesn't end in good fruit, in happiness or peace, or a loving relationship. But our focus today is on loving God in the first four commandments. And I'd like to expound those commandments and principles of love, how they, in fact, are expressions of a relationship. We generally think of them more in terms of simply commandment or instruction in a religious manner. But they are, in fact, Expressions that guide relationships, not not unlike the relationship we may have with our mate if we're married or others that we love that are a part of our life. And when we understand that, we have a better understanding, a better grasp of how God's commandments work in our life as an expression of love. The first commandment, going back to Exodus chapter 20, In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Before the first commandment is actually given, it's interesting what God says because it's God that draws us into relationship with him. And so he points this out first. It says, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And we know from the words of Jesus 
It's clearly revealed in the New Testament that no one can come to God unless the Father has drawn him. The Bible shows that God enlightens us, that he opens our understanding, that he gives us sight spiritually, even as illustrated in the calling of the Apostle Paul, where God blinded him. He could not see. He had a great deal of biblical understanding. He was steeped in religion, but not with understanding. But it was God who opened his eyes. He opened his sight and gave him sight. Well, God's done the same in our lives when God's called us. He's given us understanding, and he's drawn us into a relationship with him. And that's why it's very important we understand that. That's why this sermon started there, that God loved us, that he's the one who brought us into relationship with him. And so now we respond to that. Now, what's the first area of response? Well, the commandment's simple. You shall have no other gods before me. God requires that he is first in our life. You know, in the most intimate relationship of love that God's given to us physically, which is between a husband and wife, a young man and a young lady as they grow to love one another, that's very important. In fact, it's often expressed. A young man will tell perhaps his bride-to-be that she's the most important person to him, that she's very, very special in his eyes. And he expresses that. Those are terms of endearment. Those are expressions of love. But they also reflect the innermost being, the thought of the heart. You know, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 14 that to be a Christian or a disciple, that this is a first step. This is a priority. We, I know as a minister, in the ministry, we read this to individuals who are counseling for baptism. Then we go over this passage. And we, it's a very real expression of one's priorities. In Luke 14 and verse 25, Christ was speaking here to a multitude. It says, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, the Bible doesn't teach us to hate our parents. The Bible tells us, in fact, one of God's commandments is to honor our parents and to love others. So it's not properly translated. The correct translation is one that expresses priority. And we've always, in the Church of God, understood this to be best expressed in our language as saying to love not less, that we should love less than God, our father, our mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, and his own life also, that you have to put your life and the things that you desire in life secondary to your relationship to God. If you do not, Christ said, if you don't do this, he cannot be my disciple. So one of the very first principles Christ expressed in terms of following him or being a student or learning was to make this decision a priority of putting God first. Christ also emphasized the fact that it is individualistic. That is something that affects each of us in our own individual lives. And that relationship may be unique with God. It says, whoever does not bear his cross. And we do not all have the same cross. We don't have the same trials or difficulties. We don't have the same strengths or weaknesses. We deal with life as God has blessed us. God has given us a tremendous gift of life, many opportunities. And God wants us to use what we have. It says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know, this passage is actually a, a clarification or a magnification of the first commandment. We also find another interesting passage in Matthew 19. There are many 
mainstream Christians and who do not really understand what Matthew 19 brings out. In fact, I've, I've seen them use the scripture to say, well, Matthew 19 defines the New Testament commandments of God. Well, let's examine this carefully and see if this command, this instruction here in Matthew 19 omits the first four commandments. I'll show you it does not. In fact, what Jesus Christ did was to address this issue in a manner to highlight the actual weakness of this young man because his weakness was not in his relationship with his neighbor or his parents. His weakness, his fault, was in his relationship to God. And Jesus Christ made this very clear and very plain. Notice here Matthew chapter 19, and let's start in verse 16. It says, Behold, one came and said to him, that is to Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. So Jesus immediately focused him towards God. And it's interesting because this young man's, as we'll see, his focus tended to be more at a human level. His worship and his relationship to God, in his mind, had much more to do with the things of this life, the worldly things. Not that God excludes them, but it was a matter of focus and priority. Christ told him then, but if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? So he had a little bit of confusion in his thinking. Christ did not. Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, when you read that, most people stop there in terms of the commandments of God. But did Jesus Christ, or was Jesus Christ, in fact, encouraging this young man in positive things that he, in fact, had done? Because Christ, or excuse me, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? There are very, very few people that could literally say to Jesus Christ, I have done these things, that I have not stolen, that I've not borne at any time false witness, that I've always been loving and respectful to my parents, that I've not committed murder or adultery. You know, this young man was a remarkable young person. And Jesus didn't dispute what he said. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What did Jesus Christ ask this young man to do? Well, most people, well, get rid of his wealth. No, Christ asked him to make a decision of priority. Jesus asked him to obey the first commandment. You can read in the scripture in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5 that covetousness is idolatry. And so Jesus Christ focused this young man to the commandment that he struggled with and the area of his life that he struggled with. And that was his relationship to God. He was a remarkable young man. But his physical possessions were more important to him than his spiritual life and his relationship to God. And so if anything, this instruction actually reinforces the importance of understanding and committing to ourselves obedience to God's instruction as to how to love him, how to express our love. Now, the Bible tells us very straightforwardly in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. We sometimes refer to this as a scripture in the church that we should all know by heart and memorize. And I would agree with that. 
because it's a, a, a very basic principle of our focus and our priority. Verse 33 of Matthew chapter 6, as God discusses all of the physical things that we have need of, and that's what he's discussing, the needful things, clothing, shelter, food. He says, in spite of those needs, God says to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That we first seek a relationship with God. That we first put, we put first in our life God. And when we do these things, God will bless us. So the Bible emphasizes Christ magnified the law. In John chapter 15, Jesus said here, John 15 and verse 9, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus made it plain. He followed these very guidelines. He kept God's commands. He abided in the love of his Father. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You know, one of the things that God said of Abraham is that he was a friend of God. You know, I wonder if we stop and think about that in terms of what Abraham did. Abraham was willing to lay down those things that were most important to him in his life for his friend. This is an expression. And Jesus uses that very same principle literally to tell us that if God's first, we will lay down our life. Now, he also shows us in his word that that extends to our brethren whom God loves. He also shows us that in that kind of relationship, he is the one who's changed our relationship or directed that relationship. In verse 15, it says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. We know in the Scripture, the Bible also refers to the, us as brethren. That is, Christ refers to us as brethren. For all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And so the first expression of love that is within God's commandments is one of priority. It's one that's very common. It's one that we expect. It's one that if you have a relationship and you're courting or you have a relationship in marriage on the physical plane that you would expect that your boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, that you would be first in their life after God, their relationship with God. That would be the common expectation. In fact, if you were dating a young lady and she said, well, I, I really like you, but, you know, I also like Bill and George, and, you know, suddenly <laughs> you're, you realize you're not quite as special as you might think you are in her eyes. But when she says... You're first in my eyes, or you're the only one. You know, I, your, your heart, then it goes pitter-patter if you're a young man or a young lady, because you realize there's something very special taking place. The first commandment is an expression of that same relationship that God desires with us. It's one of priority. Now, how do the other commandments fit into expressing love with God? Let's notice the next commandment in Exodus chapter 20. I think the first most people understand quickly. The others we tend to apply in the sense of that we don't do these things. But is there a reason why? Does it have to do with the relationship we have with God? In Exodus 20, verse 4, 
The instruction here is something God tells us not to do. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me. It's interesting because in this situation, God literally now contrasts, we could say love towards God and actually a hatred or animosity towards God. God shows that he's merciful. He says, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what does idolatry have to do with our relationship and loving God? You know, it's human to desire aids to worship, to have something physical, to somehow, in fact, most people, if you ask them, why do you have a picture of Christ? Or why do you have a cross? They will explain it. Well, it reminds me of. It, it mentally and physically puts that thought in my mind. It's a bridge to them. It's an aid. But, you know, it's exactly what God forbids. <clears throat> now, why would God forbid a bridge? Or an aid. Well, the reason is very straightforward. God wants us, and this instruction here, is how to love God in the manner God wants to be loved. And if we use a physical aid, whether it's a symbol, a statue, or a picture, whatever it is replaces the focus that God wants us to have in our relationship with him. Now, God reveals the relationship he wants. But understand that it replaces the relationship God desires. God knows how our body and mind function, how we think, and what we do in terms of the heart. And so God directs us. And he starts first by saying, don't do this. Now, what is the relationship God wants? Notice in John chapter 4, John 4, verse 23, As Christ addressed the subject here to the woman at the well, worshiping God and our relationship to God. He told her in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship, or excuse me, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. There was a certain knowledge the Jewish people did have when they kept away from any form of idolatry. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Because that is exactly how God wants to be worshipped. Not through a physical bridge or an idol or a picture. God wants to be worshipped for what he is. His very character, his being, who he is. I think most people... If we think about it, even humanly, that is the relationship we want with someone we love. We don't really, a young lady doesn't really want a man to love her just because of her outward appearance. He wants, or she wants, that love because of who she is from the heart, who she is from the mind and soul. That's what's important. And God directs our love toward him that it does not have that physical and outward focus. It rather has a focus on the character of God. That it has to do with issues of heart, mind, and soul. Notice verse 24. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so God forbids idolatry. 
Because God wants each of us to know him in terms of what he reveals regarding himself. And the Bible literally is full of revelations of the mind, the character, the thoughts, and the emotions and heart of God. There's example after example in the scripture how God worked in someone's life and what he said to them and how he expressed his heart. And if you study the Bible and you begin to look at it and say, well, does the scripture identify to me God? It's absolutely full of identification, not of an outward appearance. Now, we know that we're created in the image of God, but God reveals himself throughout his word in terms of his character, his heart, his priorities, of his love and who he is. In fact, one of the scriptures we read at the beginning of the sermon, the Bible tells us God is love. God reveals so many of his characteristics. And that's how God wants us to relate to him. He wants us to worship him and to love him on that foundation, in spirit and in truth, the truth of who he really and truly is. We use the term in the church of God, the real Jesus. And that's very important. The same thing can be true of our Father, that we understand who he truly is by studying God's word, and we see that and we recognize it. In Mark chapter 7, in Mark 7, in verse 7, it's an interesting statement here because so when God's called us and he gives us instruction in his word, he gives us a certain pattern of life. And when you live that pattern of life, you experience life with certain restraints, but it also puts you in a certain focus. It's not the same focus as someone may have in this world who has different priorities, different guidelines, and different principles they live by. And yet you may experience the very same thing that they experience. When you go through a trial and you do so in relationship to obeying God and putting God first, your focus and your heart and your mind is completely different than someone in this world who goes through the very same trial. And their focus is totally physically oriented and may have no restraint. Now, when you go through life with God's instruction, what takes place? Well, you begin to understand God's thinking, his mind, how he approaches life. You know, it's interesting here in Mark chapter 7, Jesus said, in, starting in verse 6, he answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Think about what, what took their heart, even though they honored God, far from God. Notice verse 7. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Notice by taking God's instruction and laying it aside and giving further or different instruction as to how you do this, how you do that, and, of course, it's interesting because Christ was speaking here to the Pharisees who were knowledgeable of God's law. But they didn't apply it properly. Now, what did he say as a result of this? Their heart is far from me. Verse 8, it says, For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. And then Christ goes on to expound upon this. One of the areas we learn about God's very character is by obeying God's guidance, by keeping the things that he's given us instruction to do. And when we do that, we learn of the character of God. We learn to worship and literally to love him and love the things that he's revealed to us. You know, in the church of God, we love God's holy days. I do. I love the Sabbath. Now, it's a physical thing, but it tells me a great deal about God. In fact, we'll discuss the Sabbath later because it's one of the commandments that instructs us how to love God. I've come to appreciate very much just the simple reality that I watch what I put in my mouth. It was not difficult to give up pork. 
or shrimp or lobster. I, I never had a struggle with that. Seemed like a very easy thing to do, but it makes me very mindful of the fact that God has called me out, that he wants me to separate, that his ways are different, that I'm to be clean. But it also reveals to us that God is different, that he is clean, that he is holy. And he's called us apart to be a part of what he is. He's called us to be holy. So God doesn't want the physical aids. He doesn't want an idol or a symbol. He wants us to know him. He wants us to worship him for who he is and what he is. In 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5. It says, Now by this we know that we know him. Notice that. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. By obeying God's commandments, the very point I was bringing out, you get to know God. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. In obedience to God in terms of love is a very real thing. There's a very clear bridge and things that we all understand that all of us actually desire in a relationship. My wife and I have been married for 40 years. And she's become more beautiful every year in my sight. And it's because of who she is. It's her character, the strengths that she has. She has weaknesses. I have weaknesses. But through those years of marriage, I've come to see and understand and know her. And she literally, I think the Bible you know, tells us that you become one flesh. We've come to the point that we're many times that she knows what I'm going to say or what I might do or how I'm going to react. In fact, that can sometimes be very frustrating uh, that, you know, they're ahead of you. Your mate's ahead of you. And I, I know sometimes I frustrate her because before she says something, I, I have a pretty good idea of what she's going to say. And she'd rather that I wait till she says it. Well, that kind of closeness and that kind of relationship has come because we've shared our life together. We've come to know one another. But when we obey God's word and we walk in his commandments and his way of life, is that is what Christianity is. It's a way of life, as is brought out here in John. We get to know God. And we have a relationship with God in the manner that he wants. And it has to do with his character and his person. As we read here, whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who's says he abides in him, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So this commandment is very straightforward. It's very clear. It's very direct. It also then, brethren, logically leads us to the next commandment of God, the instruction that God has given in terms of how to love God. Notice here again, going back to Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20 and verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, why is God so concerned about how we treat his name? You know, in our society, we're generally given a name uh, for reasons not necessarily associated with the meaning of the word. I know my first name is Lambert. My grandmother on my father's side of the family, her family name was Lamberson. 
And so I was named, in, in a way, to honor my grandmother. Now, that was done for a specific reason. What the Bible shows us is that God names individuals and himself. He carries titles or names that literally have to do with who he is and what he is. And so it's not a name in a sense that we might think of Bill or Joel or or Bob or Lambert. It's rather a name in the sense of it identifies God, that he is the Almighty, that he is our healer, that he is a rock and a fortress in our life, that he is love, that he is mercy, that he is patience, that he is forgiveness. In other words, names reveal the character of God. Knowing that, if we take that aspect of God's character or who he is and take that for granted or in some way slight God or disrespect him, then, brethren, we can see why God says, do not do that. Just as much as in a marriage. We use terms of endearment, terms of respect, terms of love. It would break someone's heart, literally, to have someone belittle them or to, in some way, say something very disrespectful in a loving relationship. And when it does happen, you know, if in anger, perhaps a woman or a man in their marriage says angry words of hatred, it's very difficult to let go of that. Because the feeling is, is that somehow, deep in heart, those feelings are there. But, you know, God knows the heart. God says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so God wants us to be mindful of our heart towards him. That it is one of respect. That it is one of hallowing God. In fact, Jesus Christ, when he gave instruction in prayer, he said in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it's important we think about, and we actually perhaps, if you've never done it, do a Bible study on the names of God, the the ways that God has identified himself in the scripture. That's one way, in a sense, to expand your love and your relationship to God. If you as a member of the church of God have never taken the time to simply go through a concordance, or perhaps a Bible aid. There's some excellent Bible aids that actually do that. I believe Companion, the Companion Bible written by Bullinger, although it's not an easily found book, there are many in the church who do have it. It has an appendix where it goes through the names of God. You can do the same thing with a concordance or a computer program. But if you've never gone through and studied, and more importantly, just really given time and thought, to what God says of himself and how he reveals himself, that you've really not used the opportunity to expand your relationship and your love towards God. But if you do that and you think about it and you apply it in daily life, you know, David did that continually time after time when you go through the book of Psalms. He expressed God and who he was in terms of his character. Time after time, whether it be in mercy and forgiveness, that God was his rock, that God was his fortress, that his whole being literally trusted in God. He expressed that. And, of course, God reveals to us David's deep love towards God, and God loved him. The scripture, I guess, says the highest praise of David and that it says he was a man after God's own heart. I believe David shaped his heart towards God by his words, by his expression. You know, love grows when you express it. Love grows when you give it depth and understanding. Love grows when you expand upon the importance of someone in your life. I don't know if you've ever just taken the time to think about if you're married, all the different areas of your life that your wife or your husband have touched and how important they are to you. But God wants us to do that in our relationship to him. If you've not done that in your marriage, I I would highly encourage you to do it. 
because it can touch your heart. It can make you put life into a, a clearer perspective. In the book of Psalms, in Psalms 111, Psalm 111 in verse 9, it's a, it's a simple passage. Uh, it's language that uh, sometimes young people even uh, today, although it's hard to keep up with the language of our youth, but it says here, David says in Psalm 111 verse 9, it says, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. And he thought of God's name as awesome. That He was holy and awesome. Well, God is. And I hope that you know we think in those terms. God wants us to. He wants us to respect who He is and to love who He is. That we have that focus. And we understand it and we protect it. So we're careful with our mouth. We're careful with the thoughts of our heart. You know, Jesus was mindful of the name of the Father as Father. In Matthew chapter 23, Matthew 23, and in verse 9, he says, Do not call anyone on earth your father. He wasn't talking about our parent or or physical relationship. He was rather talking here because the Pharisees had taken to themselves titles that related to their spiritual service. And God says in terms of spiritual service that ultimately don't use that title. Now, the Apostle Paul did refer to himself that he fathered, and that he was as a father to some of the churches of God. But he did not hold that in terms of title. He was talking about in terms of function of how God worked through him. Christ is speaking of in terms of title and relationship. It says, do not call anyone on earth your father. For one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers. For one is your teacher, the Christ. Jesus was the Logos. He was the teacher. The Almighty is our Father, and it's a relationship God desires. In fact, in the Scripture, the Bible encourages us, through the words of the Apostle Paul, to understand that title in terms of endearment, that we at times in our prayers and our relationship to God would call out Abba Father or Daddy, if we were to put it in a more modern use of our language, that we would have that kind of relationship to God. And that's what God desires. And so God says, don't take my name in vain. Don't disrespect me and, and how I serve and, and who I am and, and what I give. He wants to be respected and loved for who he is, and he wants us to hold special in our side and in relationship to him that understanding. In Ephesians chapter 1 and in verse 20, Ephesians 1 and verse 20, speaking of Christ, it says, Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Whereas to God, a name has great significance. It's not just a handle that you place on someone. God named individuals because of their character, because of who they were, and the relationship they had towards God. So the commandment gives us that guidance. It gives that instruction. And as I said earlier in this portion of the sermon, you know, if you've not done a personal study on the names of God, the titles and character that God reveals of himself in the Scripture, you need to do so. It will certainly help you to grow in your love and your relationship and your appreciation of God. And I think when we understand it, it's very clear why we do not use God's name in vain. It's, it's not just about, in a sense, uh, 
as we look at someone in our society speak and misuse our language and profanity, it's an ultimate statement of disrespect. It's an ultimate statement of characterization in a wrong way. And, of course, in a relationship, we actually understand the importance of, of expressions of endearment, of expressions of love. And those are expressions that we should express in our prayers, in our thoughts toward our Father in heaven. And you'll find a great deal about David's prayers and his relationship with God when you read the Psalms. He continually worshiped God, talked about what God had done, the name of God, the titles of God. We should do the same. It's a part of worship. It's a part of our loving relationship with God. It is an area, brethren, where you grow as the Bible tells us, to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And if you do that, that love will grow. If you don't do it, you limit yourself, and you limit the relationship you can build. Let's look then at the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment is something physical, not an image, not a bridge in that sense, God actually says it's a sign. Notice here in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So God set aside time. He said it's holy time. And it is the physical connection that God commands. It's interesting to think about it. If you think in our society today and you say, what do many, many parents lack in the loving relationship they have with their children? Many people would immediately say quality time. What builds a relationship? Quality time. Time spent with one another. Time spent directed in that relationship. You know, if you were looking at a physical relationship between a young man and a young woman, and let's say that, uh, use this example, let's say the young man was uh, taking off, you know, traveling into a community uh, to be with a young lady he had an interest in. But every time he got off work and, and desired to be with her, she, she wanted to do something with her girlfriends. You know, it wouldn't be very long he'd begin to question what? Her love toward him. Or we could reverse that and, and say, you know, if a young lady uh, set aside time and they had a date, but he had something come up where he could be with the guys. And so he chose maybe to go to a ball game or, or to be with his guy friends. How does she understand that? Well, she understands that immediately. Is he doesn't care for me as much as, you know, I would like. Or, or maybe he even expresses. Well, the commandment is an expression of love toward God to, to keep the Sabbath holy. It's time that we should spend directed toward the things of God. Very straightforward, very direct, and it fulfills that purpose. It's a part of our love towards God. It's also something that identifies us in our relationship with God. Let's notice first in Mark chapter 2 what Jesus said regarding the Sabbath. I've had various occasions. I certainly don't have time to go into a sermon on the Sabbath, but I've had occasion when people have, you know, looked at issues regarding the Sabbath, and they seem to ignore the fact that Jesus Christ literally 
addressed the Sabbath as one of the major things that he brought out time and time again. And he showed how it should be kept. He addressed issues of the Pharisees. They actually thought Christ broke the Sabbath. And they accused him of doing so in the book of John. But what Jesus Christ did, brethren, is he revealed to us the principles of God regarding the Sabbath day. One of those principles in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath for us. It says, therefore, the Son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what is the purpose? Notice back in Exodus chapter 31, in the very commandment itself, it's a reminder that God is our creator, that he gave us life. In Exodus chapter 31, we see here that the Sabbath is identified as a sign between God and his people. Exodus 31 and verse 13. To speak to also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You know, if you keep God's Sabbath, then you're spending a period of time focused towards God. You know, a sign does two things. One is it identifies, it also informs. It has a message. And God's not limited to just one sign. That was one of the uh, weaknesses or, or fallacies of people in the past. They said, well, the, you know, they point out in the New Testament, the Bible tells us that in the church of God, the love that we have for one another in God's church is also a sign. And the idea was kind of like, well, God can only have one sign. And that's sort of ridiculous. Burger King has more than one sign. McDonald's has more than one sign. You know, did, did somebody say God can't have more than one? Absolutely not. But the Sabbath is a sign. It's a sign of a relationship. It also is a sign that gives us information. Because if we keep it in the manner that God instructs us, then we get to know God. Notice here verse 17. says, It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth. When we keep the Sabbath, we acknowledge God as God, as the creator, the giver of life, that the very source of our life comes from our creator, our the one who gave us the gift of life. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. On the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now the Bible gives us a great deal of instruction regarding the Sabbath. One of the instructions is it's a holy convocation. That it's a time when God's people are to come together. And the Bible expounds that to us to understand it in 1 John chapter 1. In verse 3, as John wrote here, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. When we fellowship together, God delights in it. You know, I have grandchildren. And I sometimes, of course, I enjoy playing with them. But I also sometimes delight in watching them play together and have fun together. It's a delightful thing. God delights when his people fellowship together and when they love and care for one another. The Sabbath is a very important part of our relationship with God. It's quality time that God wants us to spend towards him. Friday night should be a time when we have a chance for Bible study and prayer. The Sabbath is a time during the day where we're taught and instructed of God's way. It's an opportunity then for fellowship. It's also a time of rest, a time to reflect on life. 
maybe to take a walk and, and get in the outdoors and see God's creation or to take your children out. There's so many things that we can do in a very positive way using the Sabbath to express our love and our relationship towards God. And that's its intent. I think so often we think about the Sabbath in terms of self. We really need to think, rather, of the Sabbath in terms of an opportunity to express ourselves and to spend time with God as our creator, to get out in his creation, to hear of his words and his ways, to be with people that he has called. If you leave God out of the Sabbath and all you do is you take care of yourself, you're, you're not keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a commandment that gives us instruction in our relationship with God. God wants us to love his children. If you cannot love the children of God, you know, it's like any parent. If you have any question about this, ask any mother. If, if you love her, you better love her children. And the same is true of any father. Because we have a deep love for our children. In spite of weakness or fault, that love is always there. And so God expresses this. And there's so many other expressions, but I, I hope you get that concept. That's the purpose of this sermon, is that you look at those four commandments that Jesus Christ summarized. And he said it was the great commandment that you think about them. This sermon is, in part, is not to expound every aspect. It's more in part to help you think about and take further the thoughts and, and the direction that I've expressed here so that you can grow in your love toward God. Brethren, when you get down to it, let's go back to the beginning of this message in Matthew chapter 22. The great commandment. And Jesus made it very plain. He did not hesitate. He was asked, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. What God does is he gives us instruction and direction as to how we should love him. When we follow that instruction, when we follow that direction, rather we come to have the love of God in us. So do not neglect. This is the great commandment in the word of God. Spend time on it. Think about it. Take the time to expand upon some of the things I encourage you to study in this sermon. It is the most important commandment we keep. It's a summary of the first four of the Ten Commandments, how to love God. 